Hello, and welcome to Order in the Court, a podcast production of the Bolch Judicial Institute of Duke Law School. Here's your host, retired federal judge and the director of the Bolch Judicial Institute, Paul Grimm. Welcome to Order in the Court, uh, the podcast where we talk about rules and issues that make it possible for courts to do their work as fairly and efficiently as possible. Uh, I'm thrilled today to have my good friend and personal hero, Professor Dan Capra, with us today to talk about the proposed changes to the federal rules of evidence that are scheduled to take effect on December 1st, next month, uh, unless Congress acts uh, to prevent them or to modify them before they go into effect. Uh, Professor Capra is a distinguished professor at Fordham Law School and has for many, many years been the esteemed reporter for the Federal Committee of Practice and Procedure focusing on the rules of evidence. And today we're going to talk about the three evidence rules that are subject to change next month, rules 106, 615, and 702. Professor Capper, let me warmly welcome you, my friend, to this podcast and tell you how much I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here, Paul. Thank you so much for inviting me. Before we get started with the actual rules themselves, you know, Dan, it was funny. I was a practicing lawyer for so many years and had no idea idea how rules of practice and procedure got enacted or amended. We've had a podcast where we've kind of gone through that in detail, but for some of our listeners, they might do with a little bit of a refresher. What does it take to add a new rule of evidence or to amend the rule of evidence? Could you just briefly go over that process so our audience gets a sense of just how much effort goes in behind the scenes? Happy to do so. If we start with any rule amendment in terms of thinking about the power to amend rules and how they get amended, we start with Congress because Congress has authority to establish federal courts in the first place, much less establish rules of procedure. And Congress can still, to this day, directly enact rules of practice and procedure and has done so a couple of times in the evidence rules, probably more often in the criminal rules. But Congress has ceded that the authority, not, not basically to, to share the authority with the Supreme Court. That's pursuant to the Enabling Act. The Supreme Court obviously is too busy to directly enact rules and so uh, has delegated that authority to the Judicial Conference of the United States. Judicial Conference of the United States has many committees that deal with all sorts of issues that, that come up in the federal courts. And one of those committees is the Rules Committee also called the Standing Committee. Basically, this is where the rule, the rule amendments would come from. There are five advisory committees that serve the, the Rules Committee, which meets twice a year, and so has a pretty broad agenda to deal with a lot of issues and obviously needs to have others work on it before it gets to the Rules Committee. And those are our advisory committees. And the Evidence Rules Advisory Committee is the one that I serve as reporter. There's also uh, appellate, civil, criminal, and bankruptcy. The way a rule starts is basically with the reporter. The reporter's job is to determine whether rule amendments might be needed based on information coming from the public, conflicts in the case laws, in the case law and other sources, proposes a rule to the evidence rules committee. The evidence rules committee looks over that rule. If the rule is acceptable to the committee, and obviously there'll be changes in drafting, et cetera, it gets sent to the standing committee. And then if that's approved at that point, it gets sent out for a period of public comment, which is six months, approximately six months, goes back to the advisory committee for refining, rejecting, uh, adding, whatever it might be, very complicated process, then to the standing committee again, this time for final approval, then to the judicial conference, then to the Supreme Court, which has essentially from mid-September to May or October till May to review the rule and can send the rule back 
back to the Rules Committee, or if they approve of it, then they send it to Congress. And Congress has until the way that works is uh, it's sent out around in May. Congress has until December 1st of that year to do something about the rule. They can reject the rule, they can amend the rule, but if they do nothing about that rule, this is the genius of the Enabling Act, then it becomes law. The whole process, if it's working completely successfully without any hindrances, without any problems, it takes uh, three years from basically where it would first be proposed to go through the public comment and the like. And some have rude the fact that uh, it is such a, a slow process. But others think that with slow processes, you get a lot more input from the public, you get a lot more thought put to the rule. And so slowness has its uh, benefits and, and detriments, I guess I would say. And so that's the way the rules get amended. Many rules start out well before three years. The Rule 106, which I guess we're going to talk about, actually has been in the works for about 22 years. So that that's uh, <laughs> it's, it's playing the long game when you're in the Rules Committee. Well, you know, Dan, I served on the um, Civil Rules Advisory Committee, and and I think that the, the length of time it takes can be a real benefit. I know a lot of people lament that you can't snap your fingers and change a rule, but these rules of practice and procedure govern all of the procedures in the federal courts, and they should mm-hmm. not be willy-nilly or uh, amended or adopted without um, some thoughtfulness. And it is a very transparent process with lots of opportunity for folks to take a look at what has been proposed and make sure that whatever comes out is really going to be effective and that it's not going to upend how people practice with sudden lurches from one area to another. So I think it's a, I think that that is the, the benefit of it. It's very true. And not to digress, I think the rule process and the length was a very useful thing with respect to the rules we're going to talk about today. It's a little bit more difficult with respect to rules that you and I have been working on regarding things like computerization, artificial intelligence. Then the problem is if you take three years to adopt a rule, <laughs> by the time you get it, you're talking about things that are, you're, you're 100 years behind. And so that's a big problem in those areas. I'm not sure what to do about it, frankly. So let's jump into the first rule, rule 106. That's no known as the rule of completeness. I think it comes from the common law. Can you just briefly describe for our audience what the purpose of the rule of completeness is as it was imagined in the common law? Uh, And then we'll focus in on the current version before we talk about the changes. Purpose of the rule of completeness is to prevent basically an unfair presentation of evidence. A rule of completeness issue arises when there's an entire statement or a series of statements and the proponent is selective in what they produce. Now, selectivity is not a bad thing. You wouldn't want to have to introduce, you know, the entire Bible if you're trying to introduce the passage of the Bible or all the business records if you only want one. So selectivity is not a bad thing, but selectivity is a bad thing if it's done in a way that misrepresents what was actually said in that record and where that happens. And the remainder can actually put the uh, entirety of the statement before the fact finder in a way that shows that that's what it actually said, uh, then that's where the rule of completeness applies. It's a, it's a matter of fairness to prevent against misrepresentations and selective present, presentation of statements. And I think that one of the reasons why the rule has such power is that it allows the party that wants the statement completed to request that the court order that it be done at the time that the adversary has put in the incomplete version, as opposed to just telling the person who wants to complete it, well, wait your turn. You're you're, going to go in a couple of days. You can put it on then, given the danger that would run that the fact finder, particularly a jury, would not remember and would miss the context of it and be misled for a period of time. Is that the basic theory? 
That's true. And part of the problem is the way the rule was written is it looks like that's all it does, that it's basically is a timing issue. The idea of timing is you don't want that misapprehension to fester for a long time. You want to correct it right away. That's true. But it's more complicated when you're correcting with the completing information that is either an oral statement or is um, hearsay. And the rule as written, I don't think did a good job of answering those more sophisticated questions. So let's talk about that. The current version, the one that will be changed effective December the 1st of Rule 106, qualified the statements that were subject to completion to writings or recorded statements. Now, the amended rule makes two changes. It broadens uh, the statements it's applicable to, and it has some discussion about hearsay. Why don't you walk us through what the new rule is going to say and how it builds from what the original rule was and addresses some of the shortcomings of the original rule? Yeah. So I must say, though, uh, just to start out on this, answer that the rule comes from an opinion from, I would say, the best judge in the United States on rules of procedure, an opinion by Judge Paul Grimm, which <laughs> raised all the questions about how the rule of completeness ought to operate. And there was a hypothetical that was given in that opinion that led the committee through five years of turmoil and dispute about this about this rule. <laughs> so I think I'm going to start with that hypo, if you don't mind. No. That is one in which the defendant is charged with a, essentially a, a gun crime. And he's speaking to police officers and he says really two things. He says, one, yes, I bought that gun two years ago, but is the second part, but I sold it a year a year later, meaning basically he had it two years ago, doesn't hadn't had it for a year. So what the government does is introduce the first part of that statement, not introducing the second. How can they do that? Well, the first part of the statement is admissible as a party opponent statement under 801 D2. Oh, and we should also add that this is an oral statement and not one that's recorded. So it's really two problems we're going to be talking about. So the first part is admissible under 801 D2, but the second part, the one where he says, I sold it a year ago, the government doesn't have to admit that. They don't want to admit that. When the defendant turns to admit that, he's subject to a hearsay objection. And the reason for that is Rule 801 D2. Under 801 D2, your statements can be offered against you, but it doesn't give you the right to offer your own statements. So he's arguing that the statement is basically misleading, which clearly it is, because if the jury only hears the first part, they're going to draw the inference that he still has it. I mean, why say you bought it and don't say anything more unless you still have it? But that's not what he said. So this is a classic situation where the rule of completeness ought to work. However, as of today, until December 1st, it doesn't work that way in many courts for two reasons. One is that many courts will hold that the rule of completeness is not a hearsay exception. All it is is a timing rule. It means that if the uh, completing portion is independently admissible, then it can be admitted at the same time the uh, selected portion is admitted. That's got a very limited application because to have that statement in the typical situation where a defendant is making statements to the police, what they want to complete with is not independently admissible. It's just not. There's no hearsay exception for it. Then, even if there were a hearsay exception for it, the rule of completeness as currently written does not cover statements that are not written or recorded. It does not cover oral, unrecorded statements. The reason for that, I guess we can talk about that later as we go through this as to why that would be, but that's what the rule provided. And so many courts would say that the rule of completeness will not work if the statement is an oral, unrecorded statement. Other courts would say, oh, well, if it's properly completing, we will admit it even though it's oral unrecorded under the court's power under Rule 611A. The Rule 611A gives the court the authority to control evidence as to uh, any issues as to presentation of evidence. And in the famous case by Judge Friendly, the court said that, uh, that the Second Circuit said that you can complete under Rule 611A. But other courts do not. The problem is that, you know, how to figure this all out. Some courts say that, well, 
we can still use the common law because the Supreme Court, in a very unfortunate turn of phrase, in the Beach Aircraft case, says that in dictum, so the Rule 106 is a partial codification of the common law, which led some courts to say, well, there's still this common law rule of completeness, and uh, the common law rule of completeness covered oral statements, so we're going to cover oral statements under the common law. I think just the way I've gone through this confuses me, and I've been working on this since 2004, and so it's really hard, I think, for courts and litigants to figure this out, especially given the problem that these rule of completeness issues usually don't rise in, uh, in limine. They don't rise, you know, there's a brief in front of the court or anything like that. They rise when the government comes in with a police officer who gives part of a statement at trial and the defendant wants to complete. Who's going to be looking at the common law in that circumstance? And I know, you know, Paul, there's an important Fourth Circuit case. I think it was in an appeal of your decision where a defendant wanted to use the rule of completeness to, to justify admitting an oral completing statement. And what Judge Neal Meyer said is, what? Why, why, why would the common law apply here? Which is a good, <laughs> a pretty good answer. Why would the common law apply here? Well, we don't think the common law would apply here. And at any rate, even if the common law applied here, it couldn't establish its own hearsay exception. There was obviously the hearsay exception and the oral statement problem because that's not what is allowed. There, there's no such thing as the common law hearsay exception under the federal rules of evidence. Not a bad point. Anyway, it's a very confusing area and also quite unfair, especially to criminal defendants who can complete and make a statement what they actually said, as opposed to what the government is using in a misleading way. And so the dual, I guess, goal of the 106 Amendment is to, one, create a hearsay exception, specifically in Rule 106, or let's put it this way, a way to overcome the hearsay objection of the government, and secondly, to cover all statements, whether they're re recorded or not. So the new change will uh, allow uh, the rule of completeness for all statements, regardless of whether they're written or recorded. And it will allow completion. I think that most lawyers think of it in the classic sense of you're uh, cross-examining a witness and, and or you're doing a direct examination of a witness. You've got a deposition transcript. At page four of the transcript, they say, no, I don't really remember what color the light was. And then at page 104, they say, wait a minute, I remember the light was red. It was definitely read. So they correct themselves because the process of the deposition refreshes their recollection. At trial, the lawyer comes in and, and says, now, isn't it true that you testified in your deposition at page four of the light? You couldn't recall what the light color the light was? Yes, that's right. The other side jumps up wants to complete, and the judge then takes a look at it. So most lawyers imagine this with a single document or statement being used for completion. But that's not what the rule says. And, and it says that any other statement. So help us understand what is meant by that any other statement and give us some examples if you could. So uh, most of the time, it is just one statement that we're talking about. Like in 95% of the cases, one statement that we're talking about. You can see how a situation would occur in which something gets clarified later because it's just the, the there's the way that certain interactions occur. So in, in one case, the question was essentially, what did the defendant know about something? Like, what were they told about something? And that's important in the case. If they're told one thing, the case goes one way. If they're told an additional thing, the case goes, and it's a whole, like a compendium of information. How much information did they have? And so what's shown in the case is that on like a, a Friday, they were at a meeting and they were, they were told A, all right? And A is not all that they need to know to act in the way that they did. And then on the next meeting, like say in, on Monday, they were told B. So now they've got the completeness, but the complete information, but they got it in two separate tranches, as shall we say. So if you just introduce the first thing that happened on the meeting on Friday, you, you've misrepresented what they actually heard. And that would that would then allow completion with the meeting, uh, with what was learned at the meeting on Monday. 
So let's talk, I think, about the most important and perhaps the one that took the most discussion and maybe even disagreement during the amendment process is that the new rule, when it goes into effect, will allow the completion even in the face of a hearsay objection by the party that had originally started the process by uh, quoting from an incomplete portion of it. Help us understand that, because I think the advisory note gives some guidance as to it doesn't always mean it's going to be substantively admissible. Sometimes it's not. And help us understand that and how we should look to uh, apply that new portion of the rule um, when we're trying to figure out, is it substantively admissible or just admissible for a correcting purpose? Well, this was the disagreement in the committee that took so long to kind of work out. And um, it actually happened over a couple of chairs. The problem that the way that some people saw it on the committee was that the uh, completing statement, let's, we're going to assume for the, the basically the entirety of this discussion that you really have a completing statement. That is to say that uh, what's happened is there's something misleading and this other statement will complete it, which is a rarity actually. But let's assume that that's the case. Well, in that situation, well, the completing statement could be offered just for context, as it was said. It puts the first statement introduced into just context. And therefore, that's the answer. It's just it's just a context thing. Really, if you think about it that way, then the the rule doesn't need to be amended because if it's offered for the non-hearsay purpose of context, it can, that can be done under the original 106. But they were willing to say, well, maybe we should put in context because courts aren't getting that. Courts are not getting that. They're not offering it. for. They're not admitting it for context. The problem with admitting it for context is it puts the, in this case, that we've been talking about the defendant at a disadvantage. Just to go back to our statement about the guns, the government gets to admit the first statement that he bought the gun for its truth. The defendant gets to admit the second statement, but I gave away the gun for context. Well, context doesn't mean that the jury can then hear that, admit that statement for its truth. And also that the, the, the government upon request gets a limiting instruction that the jury won't understand, don't, don't even know what's going on. This can be offered only for context, but not for the fact that he gave up the gun. Well, but the defendant wants to show that he gave up the gun. That's what he's got to show. And the only reason that's admissible, that puts the first statement in context is if it's true. It's not useful for context unless it's true. So I thought the context thing was a bunch of hooey, quite frankly, and, and complicated, unnecessarily so. So why not just admit the statement for its truth? That said, there will be situations in which a statement actually is admitted for completion for context. In other words, it's not required that it be admitted for its truth. And the example that's given in the committee note is this one we were just talking about, that you've got a completing statement and you don't want to know whether that statement is true. You just want to know that the defendant took it into account. In other words, it's offered for its effect on the listener. And if it completes what the listener then knows, then it can be admissible, but it's not admissible for its truth. It's, it, it truly is admissible just for its effect on the listener. So the way that this got solved in the rule, I have to take credit for this. I think I did a pretty good answer to this problem is to just say that uh, the statement, if it completes, is admissible over a hearsay objection. And that covers use for context and that covers use for truth. But in the situation that Judge Grimm uh, raised, this one about the two statements about having the gun, it's definitely got to be admissible for its truth. Definitely. And uh, basically what the rule gives is a kind of case-by-case approach that judges are to follow. But Obviously, in most cut-up statements, the completion has to be admitted for its truth. Otherwise, it doesn't really clarify anything. And then I want to complete um, our discussion of Rule um, 106 before we move on to our, our remaining two rules. I want to save the most time for 702 because that's the heaviest lift here. I think it's important for our audience to remember that the rule of completeness has always been a narrow rule, and it only really applies when there has been something misleading or unfair about the omission. I remember times as a judge uh, and as a lawyer seeing a party try to leverage something that was not 
uh, necessary to complete for fairness, to avoid a misimpression, but simply to go to a completely different portion of the same statement that supported their theory of the case, but it was not necessary to complete any misstatement that the offering party had made. Nothing about the new rule changes that, I take it. Let me give you a leading example of uh, a case that has been decided under the old rule, and the answer would be exactly the same under the new rule. The case is called a Branch. It's in the Fifth Circuit, and uh, it's about the Branch Davidians uh, around Waco. The defendant is charged with picking up a gun during an ATF raid. The ATF is raiding the premises, and the charge is that he picked up a gun during that time, and that's a felony. Good idea. Don't be picking up a gun when the ATF is coming. And so what he says to the police officer is, when I saw the ATF coming, I went down to the kitchen, and I picked up my AK-47. But then what I did was I went up to the bedroom, and I did nothing during the raid. I sat under my pillow during the raid. I had and I did nothing. I didn't shoot it. I just had it. So the government introduces the first part of that. I picked up the gun and the defendant says, what about all the completing aspects of it? There's no completion required there or, or allowed, really allowed there under Rule 106 because the first statement is a complete statement of the crime. I picked up the gun. It doesn't matter what he did after. But what if he's charged with shooting a gun during the ATF raid? Then that statement, the first part of that, then becomes misleading because if all of the jury hears is that he picked up a gun, they're going to infer, of course, that he shot a gun during the time when that's not what he said. So if you follow that distinction, you can see where the rule applies and where it doesn't. That's a great way to sort of sum it up in terms of what the underlying purpose is and, and what the parameters of that are. The next rule change was one that was uh, an interesting change to me. It was the change to Rule 615, so-called rule of sequestration. I mean, I think lawyers are very familiar with that. The the current rule provides that um, upon motion of a party or the court acting on its own uh, can order that a person who is uh, uh, intended to be a witness in a case be excluded from the court while other witnesses are testifying to make sure that they're not being coached. And the exceptions are clear and, and common sense. Obviously, a named party cannot be excluded, a, uh, a designated representative of an organization uh, or an entity a single designated representation representative, um, a person whose presence is necessary to help a party prosecute or defend, for example, an expert who needs to hear testimony for the basis, and then uh, individuals who have a statutory right to be there, or a victim in a crime, perhaps, and might, might have a statutory right. And pretty much everybody understood it. But the current rule does not address whether the court's authority ends with just saying you're out of the courtroom during this testimony or whether the court could take action to uh, supplement that with uh, additional orders to make it effective beyond simply saying that the witness can't be in the courtroom. Can you walk us through the change to Rule 16, 16 that will go into effect, what its purpose is and how you think it will clarify a confusing area about the authority of trial judges to make the sequestration rule effective. Yes. The spirit of the rule is to uh, regulate the problem of tailoring testimony. A witness who hears what had gone before can tailor their testimony accordingly. So it's to protect against that from happening. The problem with the rule as it's drafted, as it exists, is that the spirit of the rule is not completely effectuated by the rule itself because the rule itself simply requires a court to exclude the witnesses upon motion of any of any party. But a witness who is excluded has access to trial testimony. They do. I mean, especially today, all they have to do is get on the internet. You know, if you're going to testify in the Sam Bankman free trial, you know exactly what was said <laughs> to the to the to the word. Uh, on the on the day before you testify, you know exactly what was said, and it couldn't happen. And and this wouldn't be prohibited by the terms of the rule that a lawyer could just send the 
send the transcript to the witness or the witness could just get on pacer and, and figure out what happened. So the rule is working really at a half measure if what they want to do is protect against tailoring. What about access once you're excluded is really the question. So this led many courts to say that, uh, well, we're going to apply the spirit of the rule to basically say that rule 615 orders actually do extend outside the courtroom, actually do prohibit witnesses from accessing trial testimony, even though that's not what they say. And the problem is that rule 615 orders uh, are not explicated very well often at trial. A judge will just say, well, I'm imposing the rule, now get out of the courtroom. Uh, I, sometimes they don't even say 615, they just say the rule. And so uh, what, is it, what does rule 615 order mean? And if you're just a witness who does not know the nuances of all the like, rule 615 issues, you think I've been excluded. Well, does that mean I can't access trial testimony? Didn't seem to me that that's what it means. And then even if you look it up, it's not, that's not what it means. Most circuits hold actually today that the rule 615 order means more than it says. And it's never good for a rule, to, an order to mean more than it says, especially an order which says, essentially, if you violate this order, there could be sanctions. There could be, you know, um, the, the, the judge is not going to be happy about that. So you would want these orders to be more explicit. It was readily recognized by all the courts that the trial, that the 615 order is not the termination or the terminus of a court's ability to control the proceedings. I mean, if you think about it, a court could be asked today to go further. I mean, there's gag orders that, that are going on that they, they go farther than the courtroom. So you could actually impose more limitations on access by witnesses to trial testimony if you were asked. But the thing is, a lot of people didn't know to ask because that's not in any rule. So you had this kind of unsatisfactory situation in which some courts were applying Rule 615 as it was written. And the First Circuit is a, was the leader in this one and said, well, if you want more, just do an order, which is a trap for the unwary because it's not in the rule. And uh, it's just it, that becomes a problem of, of selective application. And other courts saying, well, you don't need to do that because Rule 615 order extends that far, but it doesn't actually say that. So this rule is my favorite rule, I think, that I've ever had for an amendment because it really makes things clear, which is an important thing. It rectifies a conflict in the courts. It's um, not partisan. It's not a good, it doesn't help defendants more than plaintiffs or defendants more than the prosecutor. It just helps everybody. So what it does is it basically says a Rule 615 order. If you're saying this is a Rule 615 order, it means what it says. It just means excluding witnesses from the courtroom. But a newer provision in 615 now says if you want to get more than that, if a party wants to get more than that, and of course, can court can court do this on its own motion too, you can get an extra order or additional aspect to an order that would prevent witnesses from getting trial testimony and prevent parties from giving them trial testimony. And that's what the rule says now, what the rule will say. And I think that particularly now, as you point out, than when it's so possible to get from other sources what testimony has been offered, even when you would think that that would be a hard thing to do. It's not in many cases. And oftentimes in the cases when you most want the rule to apply and, and not have coaching, that it allows that explicit order from the court to make sure that there's no uh, confusion. Because in the absence of an order, certainly lawyers might be thinking, well, he didn't say I couldn't discuss it with the with the witness when I prepare them. I think the advisory note is helpful because it recognizes that there may be issues centering around professional responsibility of an attorney to their client and in a criminal case, effective assistance of counsel uh, that could arise if the order prevents a lawyer from telling a witness that the prosecution 
witness said X, Y, and Z. And, and so one of our defense witnesses said A, B, and C. So I want you to know that they're going to ask you questions about that. Is that a violation of the rule? And I think it sort of recognizes that judge is going to have to deal with that on a case-by-case basis. Uh, as we conclude this, can you just sort of offer some thoughts about how that might take place? Well, your circuit has, I think, the leading case on that. It's the Rhines case. And I, I side with Judge Niemeyer on this. I, it seems to me, Judge Niemeyer in dissent, in the Rhines case, the court held that preventing the, the defense counsel from telling the witness about something that was said about a drug transaction, I think the day before in the trial, preventing that uh, violated the the right to effective assistance of counsel, essentially. But what Judge Niemeyer points up is you can prepare a witness in a way that gets them prepared, but you don't have to specifically refer to trial testimony. You know, you could argue that that's a distinction without a difference. I think it's a pretty important distinction. Instead of saying, build the witness you know, testified uh, about this drug transaction, what do you have to say versus do you have anything to say about a particular drug transaction? In other words, not to refer to the witness testimony is not such a terrible uh, limitation on preparation. Anyway, it's a complicated issue, as Paul notes, and um, the committee couldn't think of writing a rule about that, about uh, how a sequestration order and an order to limit disclosure outside of court would affect trial preparation. I do note, though, that there's a lot, a pretty good amount of case law on this. There are many courts who have prevented, have limited this kind of preparation, specifically with witness testimony, because preparation can be done in a variety of ways that don't implicate witness testimony. And then there are these cases where essentially what would happen was would be uh, the witnesses were at a table. This was a civil case. The witnesses were at a table. And at the end of the day, the lawyers would bring in all the testimony and they would all go over it in this kind of woodshed kind of situation. And the judge says, I'm not having any of that. And I, I think that's true both before and after this amendment. I think the practice pointer that I would I would suggest to counsel when they um, are applying this is when in doubt, raise it with a judge beforehand, say this is I've got to be able to prepare my client. Right. I got to effectively represent right. them. Know what the case law is for your circuit and go accordingly. Right. And this rule does not affect any of that. All right. We save the best for last, Dan. Depending upon your perspective, one of the most bedeviling or one of the gifts that keeps on giving is the continuous efforts on the part of the rules of evidence and judges and lawyers is to figure out what to do uh, with opinion testimony, expert testimony under Rule 702. As, as everyone, I guess, is familiar who is listening to this podcast, a tectonic change occurred back in the late 1990s with the Daubert, Kumo, Tyre, and Joyner cases. The Rule 702, which is the rule that deals with uh, opinion testimony uh, on scientific, technical, and specialized information, was amended in, in light of, and while it did not adopt by name the Daubert standards, it certainly uh, was informed by the underlying purposes of Daubert and added some requirements that expert testimony, in addition to helping the jury and um, being based upon uh, an expertise of a particular person who had the requisite qualifications, that it have a, a sufficient factual basis and that the methodology and principles that, that led to the opinion to be expressed were reliable and reliably applied. And that launched um, sort of a, a renaissance in the way in which expert testimony came in. Since that occurred, there were a number of events that focused in on what's referred to as forensic evidence in criminal cases, uh, which could be anything from tool mark evidence to blood splatter to hair analysis, and a lot of back and forth about how judges functioned as the gatekeeper, uh, which led us to the proposed changes to Rule 702 that are scheduled to take effect. Can you sort of walk us through what the underlying rationale was that, that required this change? You, when you read it quickly, you might not pick up 
how important a change it is because it can be a little bit subtle, but I find this to be an amazingly important change because it clarifies, I think, in a way that had been confusing to lawyers and judges, the judge's gatekeeper role and what the proponent must show. So can you walk us through what these new changes are going to say, what they're trying to usher in, and how we can best understand and apply them? Yeah. So the amendment came from two separate sources. One source was, I guess I would call it the preponderance of the evidence issues. The concern was and still is, that there are many courts that have found that the requirements of the 702 Amendment specifically, which is sufficient facts or data, reliable methodology, and reliably applied, particularly the sufficient facts or data and reliably applied, many courts had treated those admissibility requirements as questions essentially of weight. Basically, they had applied what I would call a Rule 104B standard to those admissibility requirements. 104B meaning, well, the judge not convinced, but the judge could see that a jury could find. And that actually did happen in a lot of cases, and especially a lot of circuits. And um, basically, they proceeded from this kind of discussion that, well, you know, it's, there's a liberal thrust to expert testimony, basically shifting the burden to show that the, that the to the opponent to show that these, uh, that there was untrustworthiness. And that's not the way that the Rule 702 amendments were written. The Rule 702 amendments basically uh, included the 104A standard, at least in the committee note, the preponderance of the evidence standard. And so these courts had strayed. They had um, they had uh, not followed the amendments from uh, in Rule 702. We can talk about why they get, why they did that in a second, I guess. But that that was one strain. And so the major amendment there is to say that the court must find that the proponent must establish more likely than not that all these factors are met. Then the second I guess, focus that was thought to need an amendment was basically about forensic evidence and that um, forensic evidence, and I don't know how much, how far back we can go into this, but uh, basically courts had accepted forensic evidence for many years. And then two scientific reports came out indicating that forensics uh, were not as scientific as the courts had thought. Basically that what was happening, I mean, beyond the idea of um, going through to see what might be unreliable about certain methodologies, which I think is probably beyond the can of an advisory committee. The problem was that many experts were overstating their opinions. They were using a subjective process, and yet they were saying uh, it's a match to 100% certainty. And so that possible amendment could be to add some kind of provision to the rule, prohibiting overstatement. Over time, that turned out to be not the way that the committee decided to go. And so that part of the amendment is the uh, provision which says that the judge must actually investigate whether the opinion proceeds from a reliable application of reliable methodology. And I think that that last part, that the original advisory note in 2000 talked about that. It wasn't in the rule, but talked about that. They, they talked about this analytical gap. You know, you have you have certain facts that are established, uh, you have certain methodology, and by applying the methodology to that facts, there's a there's a range of legitimate conclusions that can flow from that. Right. Um, that that's a stream that you can hop over, and sometimes the hop was much wider than 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 you could get, and and that was part of the advisory note. And I think you picked it up. We really had our attention focused on this in 2009 uh, when that first report came out, and then 2015 when the President's Advisory Council on Science and Technology report came out. And so this dual component of the new rule that requires the judge under their 104A gatekeeper role to make the findings that the proponent by a preponderance has shown those criteria that were always in the rule. And then secondly, make sure that the opinions are not a bridge too far, so to speak, right. based upon that. 
uh, I think are very, very useful additions to what the rule does. I think the problem is that, um, as to the first one about the preponderance, I think the problem lies in Daubert itself. Daubert is kind of what you make it. There's mixed signals throughout the opinion. It does say it's a 104A standard and we're worried about junk science, but it also says that uh, it has this, I think, this awful uh, statement which says the remedy for shaky but admissible testimony is uh, you give it to the co- you give it to the jury and you cross examine etc. Well, shaky but admissible it assumes its own answer, right? In other words, if you if you restate that, it says the remedy for admissible testimony is to admit it. Well, thank you so much, court. That's really great. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but yet it can be seized on by somebody who says, "Well, this you know it's a, it's a liberal thrust," and that was the problem. That hopefully is rectified by this amendment. You know, I think that it, I think the amendment helps a lot. I, as a person who's read Daubert many times, and in, in, in the application of my uh, my work as a judge, there were so many scratch your head moments in reading that. You know, they talked about well, the judge is not supposed to decide whether the expert's opinion right. is correct, just whether it's reliable. And to the ordinary judge who's dealing in an area of, of science and technology that they don't necessarily have expertise in, how they're supposed to do that. And the other one is that they yeah, the judge is only supposed to look at methodology, not application, not how it gets applied. And then only a few years later, and Joanna, oops, we messed up, we messed up on that one because you know somebody who says they're you know what's the methodology? Well, reading reports is a methodology. I read all the reports. What's your conclusion? The Earth is flat, and uh, and and that's and that should be admissible. No, it shouldn't. So this analytical gap is a really important thing. Daubert is a landmark case, but it does have its problems. And really, these amendments are trying to correct those problems that stem from Daubert. If you ask me, that's my thought. And I think that that's right because it's an experiential thing. And as you know, not all of the justices on the Supreme Court at any one time have had a lot of experience as either trial lawyers or trial advocates. Yeah. No criticism. They're they're enormously distinguished jurists, but um, you really kind of, in, in a nuts and bolts rule like this, it's so important because so many cases now, just the mine run of cases in civil and criminal cases involve expert testimony. And, you know, by definition, it doesn't start unless the jury needs help in an area that they can't figure out on their own. And so the threat or the risk of a, you know, an expert who is not using the reliable methodology on sufficient facts and limiting it to what flows properly from that analysis can be very detrimental because the jury's in a battle of wits unarmed and can't really dispute it. And that notion about what goes to the judge and what goes to the jury, you know, I think there's still a lot of lawyers and judges who really are a little bit fuzzy on that distinction between what the judge controls and what the jury controls under 104A and 104B. You say a battle of wits unarmed. I would suggest don't put that in a committee note because there was was something to that effect in the committee note about jurors being unable to to handle these difficult issues and um, a lot of pushback on how we were insulting juries and, uh, you know, you're insulting the jury's intelligence, et cetera. So that got tempered, but it's still in there that just like we think a jury can't understand complex issues of methodology, they also can't understand complex issues of application. And so that really should be a judicial question. I don't, I don't see the difference between the two. So I think you, you need a judge to do that. Now, what the pushback from students and really anybody is, why is a judge any better equipped to answer any of these questions about expert testimony than a jury? And that's a fair question. And that's a question that probably didn't get enough thought in the Daubert case itself. itself. And and maybe the Fry test is a good one that we rely on, you know, other scientists to decide this issue of trustworthiness, but we haven't done that. And I think over time, at least, um, judges are so much better at doing this now than they were in 1993 for a variety of reasons that maybe we could talk about or not, that it is true that judges do a better job of this than juries. And so that's why 702 is as it is. 
You know, I think that that's exactly right. The note that really echoes in my mind every time I think about this is I think it was Chief Justice Rehnquist's comment in his mm -hmm. either with concurrence or he concurred in someone's dissent. And when she said, I yield to no one in my respect for the ability of the federal judiciary to be able to undertake these difficult things, but I have no idea how they're supposed to determine falsifiability and, and some of the um, the principles that Daubert was sort of built upon. And, you know, some people would say that there was perhaps a naive assumption in Daubert that there was sort of a correct version of science that scientists would be able mm -hmm. to agree on. Yeah. Uh, like they don't disagree about everything as much as lawyers disagree. So it's really in the in the, in the application that's the challenge. If you could take a minute as we conclude and just share with our audience, what do you think is most important for lawyers and, and judges themselves to take away from 702 that would help them better uh, employ this rule to accomplish its objectives and make sure that juries get the most helpful information on highly technical and specialized information without knowing that neither the judge nor the jury is ever going to be as expert as the people who are expressing their opinions. What's the, the key takeaways that you would stress on this rule as we wrap up our conversation today? I guess what I would say is the idea that you can get away with kind of a half effort, reading a couple of studies, doing a drive-by for an accidentologist, basically not doing enough homework to come up with your conclusion. That should be in the past now, because what's clear is that you, by a preponderance, you have to show sufficient facts or data. And I think a court can suss out insufficient facts or data pretty easily. Maybe they don't know all about the methodology and how it works, but I think they do know how hard the expert is working, how hard the expert isn't working. And you see constantly in opinions where the expert is asked, well, did you do this particular thing. No, I didn't do that thing. I didn't think it was necessary. And it looks like they're just breezing to their conclusion. And courts get that. And it's true. I hear, especially with experience-based experts who are relying on the methodology being one of experience is kind of hard to explicate. But what a court will say is, um, will look at is, well, how hard did you work to come to this opinion? If you're just walking by an accident and you say, well, in my opinion, based on 3,000 accidents, this is what happened. I'm not going to allow that. I need to make, you know, you did some testing, you did some, you did some investigation, you did some talking to people. So that's, a, I think sufficient facts or data is a really important thing now. And then I think that courts are now going to take more account of, you know, how did they come to this opinion? If they say, for example, that we used cell phone triangulation for location and we located the, the defendant in a particular apartment, you can't do that because the uh, methodology, the technology doesn't allow you to do that. You're overpromising. So I think those are two important factors. I think the, met the methodology issue is one that courts have worked with that's hard to figure out. I don't think this rule is intended to change much there. What the, what the committee saw was misapplications of sufficient facts or data and application. And I think that's what it was trying to drive at. I do note that a lot of the comment indicated a misunderstanding of what the rule was supposed to be. And so that's going to have to change. An idea that my expert is presumed to be reliable, that's not so. That all I have to show is methodology and not application. These were actually comments in, in opposition to the rule, saying that the rule was being changed from the happy day when all of these things were so, but they were never so. And so that's a good reason to have the rule. It seems to me that the negative comment actually proved out the rule. It really did. I think that that's exactly right. And I would just simply suggest to our audience that they should continue to read the 2000 Amendment Advisory Note because it makes it clear that while most of the lawyers know the mantra of Daubert, error rate, peer review, general acceptance, and then uh, and, and uh, standard uh, testing protocols, there's a lot of other things, too, that kind of go into that methodology and whether they've 
taken that analytical leap it's too far such as did they account for alternative explanations does the methodology exist for a non-litigation purpose and if so was the same degree of rigor used those are still good questions to ask as well i would not want to suggest to lawyers and, and judges that they not read the original uh suggestions in terms of how judges might do the job better i think that the new rule focuses us much better and i'm hopeful and looking forward to watch its application with um hopefully better outcomes. I would say a few things. One is uh, the 2000, the, the 2023 amendment doubles down on everything in that note, I'd say. And one one might say that the 2000 amendment, the very reason for the 2000 amendment was to write that note to provide <laughs> to provide guidance to people in figuring out like the thousand Daubert cases that had come out. I think that was a very important reason for writing the note. And then the third thing I would say is you can't write a note like that anymore. That note is kind of one of a kind. Right. And now the, the committee, the rules committee says that you can't write notes essentially that are helpful. <laughs> you, can, you can only write notes about the text itself. But I would say that note really proved its worth because it's cited everywhere, even today. And so I, I would hope for a time when uh, notes could do more than they're doing right now. That time is so far, right now it's passed. I agree with you. Remembering those same injunctions that I heard on the Civil Rules Committee by our wonderful reporter saying you can't do that. But I also remember as a judge being very grateful for the note right. to the 2000 changes because yeah. you're sometimes you're hanging on to the edge of the ledge with just your fingernails and you need something to hold on to to keep yourself from falling. And those would suggest comments that when you actually explored them, they made the job easier. So I, I agree with you. Well, Dan, this has been a wonderful presentation. No good deed goes unpunished because we're going to have you back next week to do another program on the proposed changes for 2024. As one person who has always looked at the entire world through the lenses of the rules of evidence, I can't tell you how fun this has been for me to have a chance to spend so much time with one of my heroes. Uh, and I look forward to having this out there for our listening audience to get the benefit of that conversation and to continuing it uh, next week with some new rules. So thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, me too. It was really fun, Paul. And I yeah, I take to heart your point about you live with the rules of evidence because I constantly go through life, you know, and I see something happen to me and I say, well, that's a 407 moment or that's an 8032 moment. <laughs> so that's the way my life is. And evidence is life, Paul, as we both know. So thank you for having me here today. 